This week I was able to go down to North Carolina and I was mentored there by Jim Cimbala. And Jim is a senior pastor of Brooklyn Tabernacle Church in New York City. He started that church in the 1970s with about seven people. And today it's 16,000 people. And he wrote a book in the late 90s called Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. Some of you might be familiar with that. Um, the setting was the Billy Graham Training Center in North Carolina called The Cove. And at the end of one of the sessions, I was able to go and find the Billy Graham Chapel and um, sit in this place that um, Ruth and Bill had designed years ago. Um, and I was just awestruck by the privilege of studying God's Word in that setting where um, such great individuals of the faith had walked before me. Um, I texted Lori and said to my wife, um, I can't believe I'm getting to study Hebrews in, in this particular setting um, to bring this back to you this morning. So in that moment, I was caught up in this moment that I knew was going to unfold this morning because I think what you're going to hear is incredibly encouraging. We've seen some pretty hard stuff in our study of Hebrews. A lot of warnings, admonishments that are coming from this author. And there's some really great encouragement this morning you're going to see. But before we get there, I want to pray with you that God would just give us the eyes to see what He wants us to see. Would, would you bow with me in that way? Father, we come before You recognizing that everything that we're about to do would really have no meaning None whatsoever if it weren't for the activity of Your Holy Spirit. And so in this moment, we ask that Your Spirit would be our teacher. And that You would come alongside and You would show us what we need to see according to Your purposes. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I start off with a question this morning. Because I'm going to come back to this at the end of this teaching. What are you putting your hope in this morning? What do you personally have your hope in? Some of you are going to be tempted this afternoon. You're going to be tempted by some television ads. Some of you are going to be tempted to put your hope in a new set of golf clubs as though that could improve your game. <laughs> I'm just saying. Some, some of you are going to be tempted to put your hope in a new car. There are going to be a lot of car ads on the television this afternoon saying, buy me. Your life will be so much better if you just buy me. Some of you are going to be tempted to put your hope in another person. Dating sites are going to pop up all over the screens. If you, if you have this person, your life will be so much better. See, we're constantly hearing these competing voices. Do this, buy this, have this, and you'll have a greater sense of hope. It, it'll fulfill you. You're going to really need to meditate on this for a while to make sure that you're not guilty of chasing after a false hope. It, what is your hope in this morning? And is it centered in what it needs to be centered in? You find in verse 9 where we left off last time, two weeks ago, before Mother's Day, that there was a change in tone. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 9. If you have your own Bible or the one in the pew rack, you can look up on the screen and see how he left off. This writer said, in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things pertaining to salvation. See, a slight shift. It's been all warnings, all admonishments, and now we see this word beloved for the first time in six chapters pops on the scene. 
He uses the word agape, a part, a derivative of it, meaning he's got a warm tenderness for these people. There's some real affection for the people that are in this church, these Hebrews. Even though he's really had some critical things to say, he wants them to know he holds the best for them. Uh, with that in mind, go to verse 10, because here's where the warmth starts. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints as you still do. See, this author knows God's not unjust. In other words, God doesn't forget. That what you're looking at here are the words of a really skillful communicator. Verses 10 and verse 11 are part of the reasons that people believe that Paul is the author of the book of Hebrews. Because he uses this word association here, calling God not unjust. It's a master understatement to refer to God as not unjust because it's the nature and character of God to be just. You want to stand before a just God one day, don't you? I do. We know God to be just, to be righteous and true. So he uses this understatement saying he's not unjust. God's not going to forget. This, this God will never forget what we've done in His name. There were teams of people that showed up here yesterday to serve the church it, it, just in beautifying the grounds, putting out mulch and trimming the lawn. God sees these things. God is not unjust to forget what we do for His church, what we do for each other. And that's what He's specifically speaking of here, reminding them of what they've done, what they're still doing. And He says, and He links it with verse 9, things that accompany salvation. Meaning it's kind of the evidence that you're really a believer in Jesus Christ. So he speaks specifically of the love towards others in the church. Now let me take it up a notch. Because it's very possible for it to look like I'm loving you appropriately or you're loving me appropriately, but have it not be rooted in God. See, it's very easy to love people when they look especially beautiful. Or love people when they especially have a great personality. That necessarily can take place, but not always be rooted in God. Because it's easy to love the lovable, but that doesn't mean it's stemming from God. However, contrast, when we love someone purely just because they're loved of the Lord, meaning they belong to Jesus, when we love someone who's an EGR, you know what an EGR is? Someone who needs extra grace, extra grace required. It's not unique to me. Rick Warren coined that years ago. There's EGRs in our world. You might even have one sitting next to you this morning. It might even be you. Don't be looking at the person next to you. Don't tell them they're an EGR. Extra grace required is necessary in the church because we don't always get along with each other. But he says you're loving on each other. And God doesn't miss that. And when we love on those, even the EGRs, then we really possess something that no hypocrite ever possessed because they can't. See, we love each other that way because we belong to the same purpose, to the same kingdom. That's the things that he's talking about that are inseparably linked with salvation. See, those kind of things, they motivate you to pray for one another. Prayer request comes up on the prayer list. You're going to pray for somebody. Because it's really hard to pray for somebody you don't like, right? Is it just me? I'm, I'm, it is. It's hard to pray for somebody you don't like. But when you've got something in common, common goal, common purpose, common destiny, it's much easier to pray for that person. 
Or you're motivated to take meals to someone's house. Or it motivates us to help pay for someone's power bills when they can't. Or to help them with their transportation. Or to sit with them in the hospital. It, it even motivates us to the degree to send people out around the world on mission trips. Because that's the kind of love we're talking about here. This kind of love is functional. Now, that kind of love is really only a pretense if there's no action. If we say we've got it, but we don't really measure it out there, let me put some flesh on it. If I say to my wife, I love her, but there's no evidence of it, it's a pretense, right? So I could say to Lori, I thought about buying you some roses. She could say, I thought about cooking you some supper. Right? Now, she wouldn't do that. But see, if there's no action behind it, what good is it? It, Love is really just a pretense at that point. So this kind of matches what Paul said in Galatians. In Galatians 6.10, he said, So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. You know what? To do that requires knowing people. That's why we create this environment here at New Hope where people can linger. If you're visiting here, by the way, there's, there's cookies and donuts afterwards and muffins, so you can stay around and get to know people. We create this environment so we can connect, so we get into each other's lives. Uh, there's one more detail here to verse 10 before I move on. It says, you have shown this for His name. See, it's directed towards the saints, but it's for Christ's sake. In, in antiquity, the name of someone represented all that person is. Everything about that person is contained within their name. That's why God said, I am blank. Because His name represented all that He is. So He just said, I am. Well, in antiquity, the name represented everything. So when we love someone in Christ's name, that represents the the fact that there's this real affection for God. We love all that He is and we just pour it out on each other. Here's a way to understand that. In the first century, when Jesus was alive, there was a woman the week before He was to be crucified who broke into a party. Nobody invited her. She was unexpected. She crashes the party. And she comes in and dumps a bunch of ointment on Jesus. And nobody saw it coming. They didn't anticipate it. But the disciples began to chastise her because of what she did. She said, what a waste. Now Jesus rebukes them. He says, it's not a waste. She saved this to anoint me. Now, this woman got to pour out this oil on Jesus, on His physical body. We don't have Jesus here today physically, so we pour out on each other. We're called His body in the Scriptures. So we pour out our love on each other. That's that's this evidence that we get to do. So that's why this author is saying, don't worry, God's not going to forget. He's not unjust. He knows your work for Him. He's watching how you love on each other. That's a setup for verse 11. Go with me to that. Verse 11 says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Here's the concern. Some people are going to settle. Some people are going to come into the kingdom, they're going to discover who Jesus is, and they're good with that. And they don't press on to maturity. And he says, I'm concerned that you would all have this full assurance. So he adds in verse 12, don't become lazy. We looked at this word three weeks ago when we were in session 12. In chapter 5, he says, don't be sluggish. Look with me on the screen, the word nothros. 
You might remember this. It, it has this concept of no and push put together, no push. Nothros means somebody's sluggish about something. In the context of chapter 5, it was don't be lazy about the Word of God. Here he's saying, don't be lazy about how you're loving on each other. Now, you really need to check yourself on this right now. Am I apathetic towards my brothers and sisters in Christ? Do, do I just show up, how you doing, say the thing in the hallway, and then go out to my car? Or am I genuinely involving myself in the lives of people? So ask yourself this question, do I have this same problem? Here's why I ask it. I run into people on a regular basis who say to me, I don't know what's wrong. I just have no passion. I used to have passion for the things of God. I used to really want to get into his word. I'm just feeling so, I don't know, sluggish or dull about it. Well, there's a link. There's a reason that he linked this loving on the family of Christ with this concept of having the full assurance of hope. Look with me at verse 11. Very closely up on the screen, I put just that section, the full assurance of hope. Now, in the Bible, when you see the word hope used, it merely is representing a reality that has not yet unfolded. We use the word hope differently here in the English language. We use it almost like, I wish something would happen. I hope the government will get its act together. Okay? You, you following me on that? It's a, it's a hope. It's a wish. But when we use it in biblical context, the word hope actually means a reality that has not yet been realized, a firm conviction of something that will happen in the future. That's the real biblical meaning of hope. And hope is absolutely crucial because nothing will grip us if it doesn't give us hope. So understand why he's linking these two together. Because full assurance can be used for the word confidence and hope can be used for the word confidence. So he could have said the full confidence of confidence. He could have said that in the Greek language. But what I understand he's wanting us to see here is that we're not hoping in hope. It's something much more secure than just wishes. You'll understand that as we get into verse 13. So he says, be imitators of those people who have gone before you. And he's going to use Abraham as an example. Go with me to verse 13, and let's see three really solid reasons you can put your hope in God. Go with me to verse 13 through 16 or 15. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. So enter Abraham. Abraham comes on the scene. Why? Because he's a visible example of what's really on mind here. He's called the father of everyone who believes. Yep, he's the father of the Jews. But he's also the father of all the faithful. So he becomes the perfect illustration of a man who in the midst of incredibly hard circumstances stayed with God right through to the end. So this author is saying, hey, you can look around you at Paul. You can look around you at John. These guys were all alive in the first century. You can look around at them or you can look a thousand years, two thousand years earlier and see someone who endured to the end. Why Abraham? Because he exhibited this high degree of patience. See, although he had God's promise, hear me on this, although he had God's promise, he only had God's promise. The Bible didn't exist. He didn't even have a history. He lived in a nation full of pagan idol worshipers. 
He didn't even have a family that was rooted in God. No Bible, no family history, no national history whatsoever. So all he had was God's commitment to him. Was that enough for Abraham? You don't sound convinced. Was that enough? Yeah, absolutely. That was enough. Why? Because God is utterly reliable. So what God has promised, He's going to complete. So in the meantime, we wait. And we wait. And we wait. And we wait patiently. Because everything that God does, He does in His own timing, right? I really wish He was on mark time. I bet you wish the same thing about yourself. Don't you wish God was on your time schedule? But God has a perfect purpose and a perfect plan, so God does everything according to His own schedule. I have to be reminded of that. I can trust Him while I'm waiting. Because of His promise, it's what I hope in. Now let let me reroute you before we move forward into these three ways you can see God's promises. The Hebrews who are receiving this letter, they're afraid They're afraid that God is not going to be able to do something. They're afraid that God's not going to be able to rescue them. When things turn really, really bad, they're afraid things are going to go so wrong, they're going to lose everything. So he's assuring them, even though the Caesars are throwing your brothers and sisters in Christ into the Colosseum, you can trust God. He will do what He says He will do. So the promises are secure. These three rock-solid truths, I'm going to show you how to see it in your own life because of God's person, because of God's purpose, and because of God's pledge. He's made a pledge to you that whatever He says is true. So here's the first one, His person. The reason God cannot lie is because He is truth. By definition, whatever He says is true. Do you know that God has no capacity to lie? He cannot lie because He is truth. That's why Jesus could stand and say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He was declaring something that was a reality about who God is. God shows up in the Old Testament and says, I am merciful. I am abundantly loving. God shows up in the New Testament in Jesus and says, I am truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. See, He's declaring a reality about who He is. So His promises are secured by His person. If God makes a promise, not only will He keep it, He must keep it. Now here's an example of one of the promises that He made to you. It comes from Titus. Paul said that God has committed to something to you that cannot be changed. Titus chapter 1 and verse 2, the hope of eternal life. See, hope is something that's an unrealized reality. It's going to happen, but it hasn't happened yet. The hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, what did He do, church? Promised. Promised long ages ago. And when God promises something, He has to see it through. So long ago, God promised eternal life, and He cannot lie, can He, church? So let me use Abraham as an example because this author used Abraham as an example. Abraham was told something specific by God. If you look at verse 14, it says, God swore by Himself, I will bless you and I will multiply you. Did God multiply Abraham? 14 million ethnic Jews alive on planet Earth today. Even though the Hitlers of this world have attempted to stomp them out. 
Now, you don't have to stop with Hitler. You can go all the way back to the time of Babylon. The leaders of ancient nations have tried to stomp out the Jewish people. But God says, I will multiply you, and nothing in hell or in heaven can change that. Once God has made His Word, His Word stands forever. So 14 million ethnic Jews alive on planet Earth today. When you look around today on planet Earth, do you see the Philistines still in existence? What about the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perzites? None of them. See, people groups come and go. But the Jews and ancient people, because God said, I will accomplish a purpose through you. The only nation in the existence of the world who barely existed on the brink of extinction and then came back with a roar. Why? Because God said, I will multiply you. God never fails. He never will. So you can trust God this morning because He has no capacity for failure. It's not in His vocabulary. That's His person. How about His purpose? What is God's purpose? His purpose is to redeem the lost. So He said to Abraham, surely I will bless you I will surely multiply you. Why? Why did God multiply Abraham? Because God had a purpose for Abraham and as a result of Abraham for the entire world. You may have never thought of this before, but Abraham did not say to God, will you bless the entire world through me? Abraham didn't do that. Go back and check the story. See, it was God's plan. It was God's purpose. It was God's idea. And the Abrahamic covenant was unconditional. Abraham was really a spectator. He didn't even have to do anything, just let God do what God was going to do. Now, he was incredibly obedient, and he was incredibly patient. That just amplifies what we think of him. But Abraham's covenant was unconditional. God did not tell Abraham he would be blessed if he met certain conditions. So God's promise guaranteed its own fulfillment. It's an incredible thought that God had a purpose. What was his purpose? Why did he bless Abraham? That the world through him might be blessed in Jesus Christ. That Jesus, after a long line of Jews, would arise on the scene. And the entire world would be blessed as a result of Abraham's blessing. Revealing a Savior The Jews were just a long line of witnesses revealing who God is. So we've got his person and we've got his purpose. Let's look at his pledge. Go with me to verse 16 through 18. Verse 16 says this, For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. People, it says in verse 16, swear by something greater. Uh, My wife landed jury duty. She's got to call in tonight sometime and and see if she's got to go serve tomorrow on a jury. And if she goes into that courtroom setting... Are you saying, oh, no, I forgot right now? (laughs) She's saying that. Oh, wait, that's right, i got to do that. So if she goes into the courtroom setting, she's going to hear some very specific words that have to be repeated in every courtroom setting. On Inauguration Day here in the United States, as a president is sworn into office, you hear the exact same words. An individual has to put their hand on a Bible, they raise their hand, and they have to say, so help me, God. Why do we do that? Because we invoke the greater 
over the lesser. And the author's point here is that we call on a greater to witness for the lesser, but there's none greater than God, so God had to swear by himself. So help me, me. Do you notice that in the passage? He had to swear by himself. I I am the one who's going to back this up. So that's his pledge. Now, here's the significance of the pledge. It was very common in the first century to make an oath by something. People were swearing all the time of a commitment by the high priest or by the altar in heaven or by God on his throne. I commit to. And Jesus shows up and in Matthew chapter 5, you see him saying to people, hey, stop swearing. I don't mean taking God's name in vain. He said, stop swearing by heaven or by hell. It, it, you can't change anything. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Why did he do that? Well, because in the first century, it's very common for people to make oaths. So this Hebrew writer is playing off on this. Because once an oath was made, the argument was over. Why? The assumption was no one would make an oath unless they're determined to honor it. I swear on my mother's grave. Who's going to break that oath? Okay. See the significance of the weight of what people say. Now, contrast that to this thought. God had and God has no need to make an oath. Because everything He says is true. Everything He says is reliable. It's His nature. It's His person. So His pledge to us didn't make the pledge any more or any less reliable. It's who God is. So that tells me that any oath God makes is for my benefit. It's for you that God made a commitment. Why? We see in verse 17, because God desired to show more convincingly. See, He did it to make it absolutely clear His promises will be fulfilled. To accommodate Mark Kring. You can insert your name in there. To accommodate you, God swore a promise on Himself. How astonishing is that? That the God of the universe would condescend Himself as to cast even the thought of an aspersion upon His character that He could not be trusted. Charles Simeon wrote on this. A lot of you know that I really like him. He did one of the old dead theologians from 1830. This thought that God would voluntarily lay Himself under any obligation. Look what his quote. That He, meaning God, should indulge those who doubt His reliability as to confirm His promises with an oath, with a view to their more abundant encouragement, is a condescension of which we could have formed no idea. He has cast a reflection upon His own character in order that He might silence unreasonable doubts. That tells me how great is the sin of unbelief. Because the sin of unbelief says this, God cannot be trusted. The sin of unbelief actually says God is a liar. If you follow it out to its logical conclusion, that's how great the sin of unbelief is. Now, God didn't do this just for Abraham. He didn't just give the oath to Abraham. We see in verse 17, he says he's given his oath to somebody very specific. The heirs of his promise. Who is that, church? Yeah, absolutely. Us. You could say, that's me. I am the heir. Did you know that you're the heir of Abraham? Look with me on the screen, Galatians 3.7. It says, know then that it is those of the faith 
who are the sons of Abraham. Those of the faith, that's you. And the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, see, that's you. If you're not of Jewish descent, you're a Gentile. That God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now we've already established that once God has spoken, it cannot be altered. So in verse 18 he says, In order that two unchangeable things are true. What are those two unchangeable things? One, it's impossible for God to lie. That's number one. Here's the second one. He made it by an oath. His his word of truth is supported by His oath. So help me me. I'm going to make all of this happen. These two things that are unchangeable are absolute without any possibility of variation whatsoever. So in verse 18, He goes on to say, we have strong encouragement. You see why I said this is really encouraging stuff for us? Because God has declared His pledge cannot be turned around. The commitments that He has made to you when He says, you're secure. You come to me in Jesus Christ, I will in no way cast you out. I will hold you and I will never let you go. That's your God. That's how you can know that your eternal salvation is secure. But before we go to these last two verses, I want to remind you, our security is not in our never letting go of God. It's in His never letting go of us. And that really comes out in verses 19 and 20. It says this in verse 19, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This author is brilliant. Before I get off on a rabbit trail, what you're seeing here is him bringing the sum total to his person, his purpose, and his pledge, and he's laying a fourth one in there for us to see, his priest. But I didn't really want to tie his priest into those other three because Jesus is a standalone, so we'll come back to that next week in chapter 7, this high priest. But verse 19, let's really understand this thought, a sure and steadfast anchor. Some of you know that I love to go to northern Michigan, especially on the northwest side, where these harbor towns exist. I was raised in a harbor town on the west coast of Michigan. And so any chance I get to go back to some of those harbor towns, I love. You think of Sutton's Bay, this beautiful location where there's this very calm, tranquil setting of water, where hundreds of years ago, ships came in to drop anchor because it was a safe place. Well, all over northern Michigan, there's these little harbor towns with these names that reflect the heritage that's known by their quality. Harbor Springs, Good Harbor. Those places were important to people at that time because they knew it was safety from the storms. If you've been out on the sea in the midst of a storm, you're worn out. And you want to know as a traveler, you can put your anchor in a safe place. Well, this author is saying our anchor is in the safest place of all. It's in the inner sanctuary. It's in the Holy of Holies. Who dwells there, church? God. You don't say it like a question mark. Yeah, God. God. God is in the Holy of Holies. He's behind the veil. Jesus entered there with our anchor 
And we're told it's in a point that cannot be shaken loose. And so there's this really interesting play on words in verse 20 where he says, Jesus has gone as a forerunner. Do you, you see that in that passage there? And maybe in your Bible, it says it a little bit different that maybe he went in advance of us. But in the Greek language, it's the exact same word. And this word that's used here, I think it's in your notes this morning, but it literally is this image in mind of a harbor and a sailor on a boat. So, so picture a, a big seven-mast schooner that pulls into a harbor. And it's got a crew of 100 guys on board. But it needs to drop its anchor in a place that's secure. And so they always choose or chose a, a forerunner. A group of individuals who would get into a smaller boat, off from the big boat, and they would take the anchor from the very large boat with them, lower it down into the small boat, and they would row, and they would row, and all the time they're looking and looking at the surface, looking below the water for a place where they could drop anchor so that it would be secure. It would be embedded See, Jesus is our forerunner. The same word is used here. And He's taken this anchor to this point that you can cling to tenaciously into the very throne room of God. Is there a greater anchor point in any place than God's throne? The Holy of holies. God has gone as your forerunner. But here's an important part of this anchor thought. It's not here, but I'm just going to expand on it for just a moment. The anchor is only as secure as where it lands, but what it's tied to on the opposite end. Is that right? Both ends of the chain have to be secure. Uh, many people have the thought of, well, I, I know that anchor is in God's throne, but man, have I got to hang on tight to that chain. Well, the truth of Scripture is God's got both ends of the chain, church. He's got your, His Holy Spirit indwelling you. We're told that the Holy Spirit was given to us as a pledge, a seal, a covenant promise from God that nothing can be changed. So Jesus holds both ends of the chain. He indwells you, and the anchor is located in God's throne who made a promise, and that God who cannot lie. See, if it was totally dependent upon us and how well we hang on to the chain, we'd be in trouble, wouldn't we? Because there's a lot of things that try and rip our hands from that chain and make us feel like we're not secure. There's a lot of storms that come your way. Some of you are in the midst of them right now. And you've got to be reminded, God's got you on both sides. He's hemmed you in. And Scripture says there's no shadow of turning with Him. He does not change. So verse 20 ends with, He did this on our behalf. See, Jesus did this for us personally he entered the veil what goes on behind the veil we know this in jewish tradition just from this imagery here when the high priest went behind the veil into the holy of holies that's the place where the atonement blood was sprinkled out the sacrificial blood spread out on the altar what a powerful image jesus spread his own blood for us in the holy of holies and he dropped anchor See, God's integrity is the real theme of Hebrews, church. God's integrity is the real theme of Hebrews 6, 11-20. Because this writer is asking this question. Can you trust God? What's your hope in this morning? Do you trust God no matter what? 
Because every promise He makes is secured by His character. So do you trust your life to God this morning? And when you grasp this, it will revolutionize your life. No matter where you go, no matter what you do, God is with you. He will not let you go. He's got your back. So you go into the hallways at school, students, and you can speak much more confidently about your God. You go into the workplace, you go into the lunchroom, you go into the marketplace. You're going to talk a lot bolder when you grasp this. When you understand God intends for you to know that you're secure in Him. His promises never change. So you've seen it this morning in His purpose and His person and His pledge. And I ask you just to go out the doors with this question this morning. Is God faithful to complete in you that which He began? Will He complete it? I see the nodding of heads. So I, I th I'm thinking you're with me on this page. In, in short, there is security with God. I've rested that issue myself. So what do you place your hope in this morning? Some of what can be measured by the reality of your walk can be on how we love each other. And I'm going to give you a chance to do that in just a minute. But I'm going to pray for you. And before you reach for your car keys, let me give you a last minute instruction, okay? So let's pray together first. Father, I thank you that in your knowledge and in your wisdom, you moved in the hearts of these individuals to be here this morning. No one here had to be here. Some people probably came out of a sense of obligation. But by and large, Father, we're here because we chose to be here. So I ask, first of all, that you would recognize that and bless that decision. And we came to know more about you. And I ask, Father, that you would take what we've heard this morning and translate that. And translate that into a boldness for you, perhaps like we've never known before. God, that you would go before us this week and open up opportunities by which we can speak of you. Because we know that we know that we know we have this firm foundation. Father, I ask that you would help us as a church to love each other better. Help us to never think that we've arrived. Really, Father, I do ask that. That we would be known by this Lansing metro area as a group of people who fully love on each other. I would ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.